You know, it's interesting how the Lord works when we were working on the songs for today. We knew we were going to sing that choir song a while back. And then as we worked on the songs and just the Lord led us to the ones we sang this morning, thank you, weren't really thinking in terms of theme and development like that. We don't uh, orchestrate our services in that way. We just ask the Lord to lead us. And then as the Lord led me to a study this week, it's interesting to see, and this is how the Lord works, it all fits together. So for somebody this morning, for multiple people, maybe for you this morning, uh, this service is for you, and God is speaking to you, and God's trying to encourage you and challenge you and strengthen you if you're in trial or difficulty. And if you're not, you will be at some point, right? It's coming. And as I said, sometimes it just hits you in the morning like it did me yesterday. There was no reason to be uh, unhappy, no reason to be concerned. Uh, had a great week, enjoyed a couple days off, spent time with family, ate way too much. And then you wake up in the morning and it's like, just, it's raining in your soul, right? So God's good and God will help us this morning. But our study this morning is in Mark chapter 6. So let's take our Bibles and turn there. Mark chapter 6. Thanksgiving weekend is always special to us because it is the anniversary of the start of our church. And tomorrow is our sixth anniversary as a church. It dates back to the first prayer meeting that we had. Uh, in the upper room, and you, some of you remember that. How many of you were at Spring and 31 for the first prayer meeting? Yeah, some of you. That was great. You guys have been faithful. Thank you for sticking with the church all these years and for being such a support. Many of you weren't there that night, and that's okay. We're not unhappy with you because you're here now. So we're thrilled that you're uh, part of the church and, and that God has led us. And we've really been through a lot. I was thinking about it this weekend, about all the changes we've been through in the last six years. The victories and the trials, the good decisions, the mistakes, uh, all the buildings we've been through. <laughs> Hopefully in this year God's going to give us one and we're just going to settle in, right? How many say praise the Lord to that? You guys have stuck with it. But we've seen births, we've seen marriages, we've seen deaths. We've seen some people go to other churches and other congregations. Others of you have come here and we're thrilled about that. That's, that's the normal trend in the life of a church. And it's hard sometimes to watch friends move on, but it's even harder to see people who stray from the Lord. But what hit me about that as I thought through all those things is God has never stopped being abundantly faithful to us. God has never wavered one moment in being faithful. He's led us very graciously over the past few years. I was looking back through some notes last night. Do you know a year ago today was our last service in Washington Avenue? Doesn't that seem like 10 years ago? That was just a year ago today. We celebrated our fifth anniversary at the building on Washington. God's led us, and he's always proven that he has his hand on us. And I'm very excited to see what he's going to do in the next year in terms of a building, in terms of potential of staff, more importantly, and, and this is very important, in terms of being more effective in reaching out to our community. God's put a burden on us uh, and on our leadership over the last year and a a new calling, and I pray that God is really going to do a fresh work of anointing within our body, uh, within our congregation, that he's going to stretch us, and then he's going to really use us in the next 12 months until, God willing, if Jesus doesn't come back until anniversary 7, uh, I pray that, that in the next year, God is really going to give us a tremendous impact 
uh, with the people that are around us. So it is very imperative that we give ourselves completely to Him. And as we saw throughout the vertical series, that we uh, are calling on Him with great faith, that we're asking Him to lead us, that our lives are surrendered to Him, and that He's going to use us in a mighty way. But that's part of a learning process, isn't it? I've been saved for 42 years. I've been in ministry for 28 years. Hard to believe I'm that old, but the gray hair tells me that that's true. I've been saved 42 years. I've been in ministry for 28 years, and I find that I still need insight and that I still need a stronger faith because it's easy to get discouraged. And even with the preponderance of evidence that the Lord gives us that He never fails us and that He never forsakes us and that He's always sufficient, it is so easy for us sometimes to get caught up in wondering, God, are you still working? God, are you, are you still with me? Do you, why, why don't you seem to be providing more? Why don't you seem to be answering my prayer? And it's easy to jump into those conclusions instead of taking an honest and kind of humbling look at ourselves and our weaknesses and our disloyalty to God and our lack of faith. Instead of doing that, we're quick to say, well, God, why aren't you helping? And God, where are you? And one of the great consequences of, of looking at the Bible, one of the great consolations of looking at the Bible is that we see other people throughout history that have struggled with the same things. We're not the first one to feel those things, right? David, all throughout Psalms, probably half the Psalms, are David saying, Lord, where are you? Lord, why aren't you helping me? Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm down, I'm discouraged, I'm depressed, I'm, uh, nobody can console me, I don't know what to do. God, where are you? All throughout, if, if David can say that, if Elijah can hide in the cave and say, God, just kill me now because I'm done, there's nobody around me to help me. If Isaiah can walk around preaching to nobody, he had no congregation because nobody wanted to listen to him. If, if people of that stature can feel the things that we're feeling, that's an encouragement, right? But it's not an excuse. We can't say, well, they felt that too, so I can sit here and I can wallow in that and I can feel discouraged all the time. In fact, the reason the Holy Spirit details those things for us throughout Scripture is because he says Scripture is for our correction, Scripture is for our instruction, and Scripture is for our training in righteousness. In other words, we look at those things, or we look at a passage like Mark 6, we're to learn from it, and then we're to change. We're not supposed to just say, well, they did it, so I can do it too, and I'm just going to be this way. No, at the end of all those times, Elijah, God says, get out of the cave. There's more work to do. David always comes to the conclusion, God, you're with me. God, you're going to help me. God, you're my strength and you're my shield, as we just sang. Every time somebody's discouraged, they come to the conclusion, God is good and God is faithful. And it changes them. So I pray a passage like this this morning will light a fire under us. How many, I'm not going to ask, but how many need a fire under them this morning? I need a fire under me this morning. I need to be stirred up for the Lord. I need to be challenged this morning. And I pray you do too. So let's read the text and let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us as we take it apart and draw some applications. Mark chapter 6, look at verse 45. Very familiar passage. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. 
After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. What a good sentence you and I need this week, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine words. Nine words that will change your week. Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Now it is absolutely critical that we notice the context for this passage. So if you're taking note, write in your, in your page, context, because context is key when you study the scripture. We don't want to just pull out the passage because we see that something happened prior to verse 45 because it says immediately Jesus made the disciples get in the boat. So something just took place. So the context in this case really gives us perspective on why the disciples kind of fail here. Now this takes place immediately, that's the Holy Spirit's word, immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. So not only is that fresh in their minds, not only are they kind of still marveling over what happened, and we'll describe that in a minute, but I have to believe as they get into the boat and they start across the Sea of Galilee, that, that that's the primary source of conversation. And it wouldn't have been casual conversation. Wow, that's really cool. Boy, did, did you see that? That was great. Jesus fed everybody. Okay, well, what's next? What are we going to have for dinner tonight? Or, or you're going home to, to your wife, and, and what's gonna, what are you going to do tomorrow? What's the day? It's not that. They've just witnessed an unbelievable miracle. And they had to be dumbfounded by what they had seen and what they had experienced and what they had been part of. And we have to naturally assume, don't we, that, that that would have changed them dramatically. I mean, if there was any doubt in their minds after all they had already experienced, after see, hearing him teach and after seeing him heal people with diseases and paralysis and leprosy, this all happens in the first five chapters of Mark. A woman who was hemorrhaging blood, uh, people who were demon-possessed, even a dead girl that he brings back to life. After all they'd seen in the first five chapters, you'd think they'd be convinced by now, but, but this is the final, uh, final evidence. This is the final proof. I mean, if they needed anything, any confirmation that Jesus was really Lord, they had just experienced it because now it affected them. You know, there's so many answered prayers in our life, so many daily reminders of God's grace, and I would even say miracles that we have experienced. Are we dramatically changed by them? Have they impacted us? Or are we still kind of dull and, 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 and unimpressed and unmotivated and unchanged? And you say, well, you know, I just came. It's a nice morning. I came to not get something that confrontational. Maybe that's, that even seems a little bit unfair to you. But listen, we just studied a series in which we place the ideal picture of what it looks like when we're completely surrendered to God. And I want to ask you, and I want to ask myself this morning, how did we match up to that? 
has the sacrifice of Christ, has the new nature that he has given to us, has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Think about those sentences. The sacrifice of Christ, salvation, the the transformation of our nature, and the indwelling of the Spirit. Has all of that literally altered us in unmistakable ways? And if we say, yes, it has, Paul, it absolutely has, then how would you define that? What evidence do we have, what evidence do I have when I look at my life and say, there, that proves it without any doubt, that area, that area, that area, that area, that area, that all of my life has been altered. I'm different. I don't think the same way. I don't act the same way. I don't watch the same things. I don't take the same things into my heart and mind. I'm completely different. My relationships are changed. My attitude's changed. I'm different because I'm transformed by Christ. What do we look at? Just just look at your life. What's the evidence? What's the proof? I'm not saying that to attack. I'm saying that because we've got to analyze that. If we've just spent six weeks saying that a believer who loves God and is committed to God has personal altars that are not broken down, but they're raised up, and they worship God with all they have, and they call on the name of the Lord, and their character is unmistakable, and their witnesses. I mean, if we're saying all those things, then it's got to be shown. Now, they've just gathered, look back at it, they just gathered 12 baskets of leftovers. As they're gathering up the leftovers, they're talking to the people, and they're saying, and the people are saying, we're full. Man, that was a good meal. How did you guys pull that together? And immediately as that's done, they, they literally put the baskets of leftovers down. And Jesus says, it's time to go get in the boat. There's no break in the action. There's no, there's no time span there. It's all fresh in their memory. Scores of people on the hillside, all hungry because it's dinner time, all needing from the Lord. And somehow God had met the need of every single person with basically next to nothing. How could they explain that? At the time they had gone to the Lord and said, Lord, everybody's hungry. We need to send them away because we have no way that we would need 200, 200 days of salary to be able to feed everybody. How can we do that? Lord, just, just send them away. We can't handle this. Let them get their own dinner. And, and you know, honestly, Lord, we don't really think it's worth it. Just, 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 just send them away. You know, when we hit obstacles that we don't seem to have answers for, when we hit obstacles that we don't have the resources to overcome, we tend to gravitate to one of two options. We either get discouraged and isolate ourselves instead of remembering the Lord's uninhibited power and God's past faithfulness. We, we, either, we either get discouraged and isolate or, and maybe and, because this is an extension of number one, We allow our faith to be suppressed, and we allow our heart to feel defeated. When we hit those obstacles, and maybe you're at them this morning, and we don't know what to do next, we're not getting a clear leading from the Lord, we're asking, maybe not asking enough, maybe we're asking with enough faith, but, but we've got an obstacle, we don't have the resource, we don't know what to do next. Our tendency is to either get discouraged and isolate, or to stop trusting and to feel very defeated. And the devil seizes on that. There's a constant and unrelenting offensive that he is launching against us every single day, which is why God is so generous and so gracious 
to provide fresh mercy every single morning. But the devil still attacks. And he still tries to offset God's mercy. And he does it in three distinct ways. The first way is that he tries to keep chipping away at our confidence in the hope that he can create little pockets of damage in our faith. He'll keep chipping away, hitting us, just, just trying to knock away our confidence so that our faith will be frustrated. So he waits until things are going well and we're kind of in a good place and then he brings about a discouragement or a trial and that frustrates us and we're like, look, I was just, I was just starting to get it together and now I can't catch a break. Why? I had a little incident with that this morning. We got out a little bit later than I wanted to get out and... And I got to church, and the kids, Jacob and Annie, I'm so grateful for them. They were helping me set up, and we, were, we couldn't quite figure out the monitors because Tony knows how to do that, and, and I didn't want to bug him. And so we're trying to figure out the monitors and set up, and the choir mic, this thing has a clip that's fallen off, and it's not right. And then I get a text from my wife, and she had had a really um, bad low blood sugar in the night. She wasn't feeling good. And then to top it all off, as I'm bending down to fix the monitor, my shoe breaks. And I'm like, you know, seriously, I'm just trying to come serve the Lord today. I got my kids up early. They come up to help me. We're going to sing as a choir. We're going to do worship and praise God. And we're going to talk about faith. Why? And that was one of those moments. I said, I can show you my shoe. Oh, no, I'm not going to show you my shoe. I was having a pretty good morning. And then, boom. Little digs, little damage to my faith. That's why the Spirit tells us in Hebrews 10, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. See, he's saying you have a confident hope in the Lord. Don't cast that away. Don't get rid of it. Don't be timid. Don't be discouraged. Don't be disheartened. Don't let it get to you. You know what the devil's trying to do. You know you're under attack. So rather than bending, fortify your position, fortify your faith, fortify your resolve that we are going to stand up and we're going to say, you're a good, good father. And when oceans rise, I'm going to step out of the boat. And God, thou, O Lord, are a shield for me, the glory and the lifter of my head. Oh, we're going to come in and we're going to praise the Lord this morning. I'm not going to worry about my stupid shoe. I mean, seriously, I'm not being facetious here. That, that's a minor thing. It bugged me. I got a little bad mood. Adam comes in and goes, what are you doing? I said, I broke my shoe. He's laughing. Thanks, brother. Appreciate that. This is a command. Come on now. Don't lose your confidence. Don't let, don't let yourself get hit now. You're getting hit, but, but, but deflect it. Don't neglect your faith. Don't get careless. Don't, don't, don't start to doubt because when we trust the Lord, he increases our confidence. So the first way the devil hits is trying to chip away at our confidence in the hope that he can create damage in our faith. The second attack is that he tries to grind us down when we're not doing well. He reinforces the untrue narrative that the Lord's not answering our prayers and the Lord's not rescuing us and the Lord's not bringing us some relief. That's why David in Psalm 43 when he's feeling this and he's kind of discouraged, at the end of the chapter he gives a little sermon to himself. You know, sometimes you got to preach a little sermon to yourself. I preach sermons to myself all the time. 
you got to preach and you got to tell yourself. And, and David actually in Psalm 43, 6, he kind of scolds his heart and his mind. And he says, how dare you doubt the Lord's faithfulness and his provision? He writes, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, praise him again, for he's my help and my God. Sometimes we got to talk to ourselves that way, don't we? we got to talk ourselves out of pessimism. we got to talk ourselves out of negativity. And we got to remind ourselves over and over, you are a shield. You're my strength. You're the lifter of my head. How many are glad this morning God's a lifter of our head? Oh, I'm so glad he lifted up my head off the pillow this morning. As I woke up, I said, Lord, thank you for another day of breath. Thank you for another day to go serve you. Thank you for another day to gather with my friends and to praise you. Thank you for another day of your word. Thank you for another day that I can call on you when you answer. The devil tries to get us when we're down, and he tries to grind us and say, God doesn't care, but that's not true because he's a liar. Then there's the third line of attack, and then we're going to come back to the text. The third line of attack is to work to dull our passion. And he does this by throwing jab after jab after jab. Boom, 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 boom. The effective boxers are not the ones that come out swinging wildly. The effective boxers are the ones, boom, boom, head snaps back, boom, boom. And then when you start to put your hands down, then they come out with the, with the hook. Or they come up with the uppercut. Have you ever felt where you're just getting jabbed? Boom, boom, boom. You wake up and relentless throughout the day. Boom, boom. One thing after another. You just keep getting hit. And by the end of the day, you not only feel spiritually and emotionally weary and beaten up, but you feel spiritually weary and beaten up. And that has the effect of weakening our resolve, but it doesn't have to. Why? Because the Lord has given us multiple resources of strength. In Ephesians chapter 6, the Spirit says, I give you offensive armor. I give you the sword of my spirit. The sword, my sword, it's yours. And I give you the gospel of peace to remind you of what I've done. So that's your offensive armor. Now I want you to put on your defensive armor, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and then, if it wasn't enough to have the offensive weapons and the defensive weapons, I'm going to give you myself. You have my power, you have my authority, you have my provision, because I am dwelling within you, and my presence is enough. And when he gives us all that protection and all those weapons, then he says to us, do not get weary in well-doing. I've given you what you need. I am with you. Keep going forward. Don't give up. Press on. Be strong. Fortify your position. Stay busy, as Paul tells Timothy. Stay busy in the work of the Lord. Don't believe the enemy's lies. Don't fall for his accusations. Don't go back to sin. That's not going to help you. Just live for me, and I will provide. So when the enemy's jabbing, 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 you just say, you know what? Like Rocky in those wonderful movies that are so unrealistic, when he's just getting the stew beat out of him and his face will be like, come on, come on, hit me again. You know, that's, right? 
Because he decides, I don't care how many times you hit me, I'm going to win this battle. And we don't have to be the ones that say, I'm going to win. We can say, God's already won. Satan, you're defeated. You jab me, go ahead. I don't like it, but God's given me defenses. And God's given me offense. See, at this point, look back at the text. I know we've strayed a little bit. Let's come back to it to conclude. At this point, the disciples, prior to verse 45, don't seem to be facing those lines of attack. But Jesus knows they're about to. And Jesus knows, actually, once they get out on the boat, they're going to experience all three at once. They're going to experience a loss of confidence. They're going to experience questions about where he is. And they're going to be weary and feeling defeated. All three of those feelings are waiting for them out on the water. So before they launched, Jesus said to them, how many loaves of bread do you have? And then they watched as he took five loaves of bread and two fish and declared a feast for thousands. But now it's late. And they're out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and they're fighting a massive storm, which not only threatens their lives, but it's threatening their faith. But Jesus, look at the text. He's back on the land alone after praying for hours. They're three to four miles away from him. Sea of Galilee is about seven miles across at this point where they are. They're out in the middle of the lake, so they're about three and a half miles away from him. It's night, 3 o'clock in the morning. That's the watch they're on. It's during a storm, so there's no moonlight. The boat doesn't have any running lights because there's no such thing as electricity that they've discovered yet. So, so there's no physical way from three and a half miles away at night with no light during a storm that he can see them, let alone know they're straining against the wind. But if you look at verse 48, oh, this is so important. The text says that he saw them, and the word there, I looked it up, it's literal. He saw them. How many know that nothing's out of the Lord's sight? There's not a single thing in your life that God doesn't see. He knows every situation you're in. He knows every feeling that you're feeling. He knows every thought you have, and he is ready to help us. Even when we're discouraged, even when we're in fear, even when we're feeling defeated. And this is an important truth about faith. There are going to be four that I want to give you real quick. The, the, the first important truth about faith is faith remembers that the Lord is always watching us. Faith remembers that the Lord is always watching us. See, the enemy loves to make us feel that we're alone. Ah, your spouse doesn't listen to you anymore. Your kids aren't concerned about you. Your friends don't care enough to, to check in with you anymore. Those relationships you have at church, they're just shallow. And God, God, come on. Do you know what God has to do? He's way too busy for you. Then we get the confirmation that the devil really is such a liar. Because the Lord is always watching us. And when we're in the middle of a battle, when we're in the middle of the storm, he comes to help us. Whatever storm you're straining against this morning, whatever's undermining your confidence, whatever is causing your faith to flutter in the wind, he is not unaware and he is not unconcerned. He is watching and he's ready to help. 
And that leads to the second important principle in verse 48. Let's read that verse again. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And read with me the next phrase. And he intended to pass by them. That's odd. He saw them. He made the effort to walk out on the water to come to him. Why in the world would he purposely walk by them? Now, in case that leads us to the conclusion that God doesn't really care or that he plays game with us, notice that he didn't stay on the mountain. Notice that he didn't walk so far away that they couldn't see him. In fact, the text tells him tells us that he was within talking distance. So why doesn't Jesus just walk right up to the boat and climb in and say, guys, I've got it, okay? Bad, boy, bad storm, huh? Yeah, I saw you down there, decided to come down and help you. And, uh, and, and he did. Okay, well, you know, I got it covered, we're good. Why doesn't Jesus just walk right up to the boat? It says he intended to walk by them. Now, that is such an important sentence. Please get this, because this is the key to us understanding the responsibility of our faith. God has declared us righteous. He's declared us and adopted us as his children and his disciples. But we have a responsibility by faith to take hold of that. Is God always gracious? Yes. Is God always faithful? Yes. But we, we are told that the just live by what? Tell me. Faith. And we walk by what? Tell me. Faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. So God is always gracious. God's always faithful. But this is a critical time in their growth as disciples. Because early in the chapter, and, and if you go on through Mark, many chapters later, their faith is not strong. So Jesus comes close enough to see them and close enough to talk to them. But they're going to have to call out to him for help. God never leaves and he never forsakes. He is always close by. He is always available. He is always ready to help. That's, that's a mind-blowing sentence. But he wants us to call on him. And they don't. They don't recognize him because fear distorts our perspective. So they think he's a, gross, a ghost. And they cry out of terror rather than out of dependence. They had just seen 5,000 people fed. They should have called on the Lord. They should have cried out to God and said, Jesus, come help us. And he does, even though at this point they're not ready to cry out. And that's the second truth that we need to learn. Faith is quick to cry out to the Lord for help. Faith is quick to cry out to the Lord for help. It doesn't delay. It doesn't assess the situation to see if we're going to need to call on the Lord. It doesn't look at other options that don't require faith. It doesn't complain that we have to trust in him. Instead, faith quickly, immediately, without hesitation, faith goes to the Lord first and only. Disciples don't do that here. And we'll see why in a moment. But it's the reason for the third truth. The third truth is faith is a position of strength. Faith is a position of strength. Listen, temptation and our fear and our emotions will try to convince us. Listen now very carefully. Holy Spirit, help us. 
temptation and our emotions and our fear will try to convince us that faith is a position of weakness. But trusting the Lord actually puts us in the most powerful place that we can be. Because if God is for us, tell me the rest. Who can be against us? There is no position more powerful than God being on our side. And if we trust the Lord and put our dependence on him, he will stand for us. By the time the disciples get to Acts 2, which we studied last week, that truth will be their confidence. But for now, look at how Jesus instructs them. Look at the red letters if you've got that. He says, it's me. Take courage and don't be afraid. Stop and read that again. Take it into your heart and into your mind. This is the secret confidence of faith. I'm here. Take courage and don't be afraid. When you and I feel afraid, when you and I are timid, when you and I are insecure, we need to do what we sang earlier in that song. We need to run to his presence. It's so simple. Don't run from him. Run to him. The enemy, when we're in crisis, when we're in trial, when we're in heartache, says, just give up, run from him, go away. It's what Elijah did. He ran and ran and ran. Right after victory, he just kept running and running and running into the wilderness. God was still there. Don't run from the Lord this morning. Run to him. And notice, let's come to the conclusion. Once he's in the boat, the wind and the storm stop. Now, it may not always be that quick for us, and it may not always be that tangible for us, but it is always true spiritually. With him, we can lay the problem at his feet, and the problem is handled. And by trusting in him, we will have greater peace and greater reassurance in our lives. And that leads us to the last truth. And we'll understand the last truth better the more mature we are in the Lord. The last truth is faith gains greater insight with every experience. Faith gains greater insight with every experience. Here, with limited faith and even more limited perspective, look at the text. They are shocked that he is there. They had trouble believing in him because verse 52 says they hadn't gained any insight from the feeding of the 5,000. Not because it wasn't amazing enough, not because God hadn't been there to, or they hadn't been there to experience it, but because it was amazing and it, they had been there and yet their hearts somehow, I don't understand it, but I've seen it in my own life so many times, somehow their hearts were still hardened. Not forgetful. It had just happened. There's no way they forgot what had just happened. But their hearts were hardened. Is that happening in your life? Our, our, our God has been gracious. God's been faithful. He's poured out his mercy. He's made his mercy available to you. He's called on you to trust him. But your heart is still spiritually calloused. That Hardness, listen now, this is hard to hear, but we got to hear it. That hardness comes from a proud, rebellious, 
unyielding spirit. And if that describes you this morning, even as somebody who at some point received Christ, I want to encourage you, ask the Lord right now to break it. Because that spiritual calcification will do a lot of damage in your life. Just like coronary disease, this is a spiritual heart disease, and it's the result of a wrong diet. Eating filth, taking in filth and, and, and sin instead of the word of God and righteousness. It comes from a lack of exercise, irregular obedience, situational faith, only acting like a Christian sometimes, but not really living as a Christian. It comes from an overall dullness, a lack of joy, a lack of gratitude, a lack of appreciation for what God has done. But listen, the more we trust, the more confident we are in his love and his mercy. And every experience becomes a greater learning tool and a learning curve and our faith becomes strong and we become more wise and discerning. And when the next crisis hits, we just say, praise the name of the Lord. Let me close with a personal example of that. I'm out of time. Six years ago, as many of you know, I went through a very unexpected life change that impacted my family and impacted my ministry. And at the time, even though it was sudden and I didn't feel it was right, I didn't feel a sense of panic. Because I had been through the wilderness so many times before. So I was sad and I was discouraged and I was, of course, concerned for my family. But the Lord was very gracious and I was also very ready to see what the Lord was going to do next. And it led to this. Harbor Rock Tabernacle, it led to this, something I never planned, something I never expected, something I never even had in my mind. And there have been peaks and there have been valleys, and the Lord has had, listen, the Lord has a lot more planned for this church, a lot more planned. We have awesome leaders, we have a congregation that loves to learn the word, that's learning to pray, and now like the Israelites, listen, this is my my admonition, our service is done. Now, like the Lord tells the Israelites, we need to stop walking around the mountain. We've walked around the mountain long enough. It's time to move forward. It's time to be powerful. It's time to be courageous. It's time to reach people for Christ. We need to be like the disciples of Acts, not the disciples of Mark 6. We need to push forward. We need to serve the Lord. We need to live for the Lord. We need to be bold in our witness. We need to call on the name of the Lord. We need to worship the Lord. We need to study God's word and start to know it and start to memorize it like our kids who know more verses than we do. We should be a church. We should be people of God who are so fervent, so on fire, so stirred up that we cannot be stopped like the disciples in Acts that we studied last week who said, bring it on, we're ready. You're not going to make us be quiet. Listen, God wants to use this body in a powerful way. How he's going to lead us, I don't know. Are we going to be in this building in a year? I hope we're going to have some stability, whether it's here or somewhere else. But whatever the case, whether we're on the mountain, whether we're on the valley, whether we're on the shore, whether we're bobbing on the water with a strong wind, we are going to serve the Lord. And God is going to be faithful to help us and lead us every day. Let's thank him and praise him, call on his name.